Substantive due process is the constitutional principle that the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments protect the fundamental rights of citizens against government interference. These amendments and their state analogs prohibit governments from depriving persons of their, quote, life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Although this prohibition sounds procedural, the Supreme Court has inferred substantive protections from such language since the New Deal era of the 1930s. But what are fundamental rights? Historically, courts have used two primary tests to evaluate the existence of fundamental rights. One focuses on whether, as explained in the Supreme Court's 1997 decision in Washington v. Glucksburg, the right is, quote, deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition, and implicit in the concept of ordered liberty such that neither liberty nor justice would exist if they were sacrificed. The other test is more open-ended and flexible, and focuses on the, quote, reasoned judgment of the courts. Once a fundamental right has been identified, in situations where government laws or regulations interfere with the exercise of such right, the government bears the burden of establishing the interference is narrowly tailored to serve a compelling state interest, like the state's interest in public health, for instance. The right to bodily integrity is one of the oldest fundamental rights recognized by the law. This right is closely tied to concepts of personal autonomy and liberty. But just how far that right extends is the subject of considerable debate and litigation. In 1990, for instance, in Cruzan versus Missouri Department of Health, the Supreme Court held the right extended to the decision to refuse life-extending medical treatment, the right to die, so to speak. In 2022, however, in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, the Supreme Court overturned 50 years of precedent and held the right did not extend to the decision to end a pregnancy. In Dobbs, the Supreme Court seemed altogether to reject the reasoned judgment method for evaluating fundamental rights. Personal autonomy was also at the forefront of the Supreme Court's 1997 Glucksburg decision. There, the court rejected a facial challenge to a Washington state law criminalizing medical aid in dying, sometimes referred to as physician-assisted suicide. Then Chief Justice Rehnquist reasoned as follows. Throughout the nation, Americans are engaged in an earnest and profound debate about the morality, legality, and practicality of physician-assisted suicide. Our holding permits this debate to continue, as it should, in a democratic society. Rehnquist's opinion only garnered four votes, not enough to settle the debate. In concurrences authored by Justices O'Connor and Stevens, the justices signaled the result might be different if the court were presented with an as-applied challenge from a terminally ill but mentally competent adult seeking medical aid in dying. In other words, while medical aid in dying may not be a fundamental right of all citizens, it might be a fundamental right for those facing incurable disease and excruciating pain. In 2017, Dr. Roger Kleidler, a competent adult with stage four prostate cancer, who is also a retired physician, and Dr. Alan Steinbeck, a licensed physician, brought an as-applied challenge to the criminalization of medical aid in dying in Massachusetts. Kleigler and Steinbeck contended that the application of the Commonwealth's manslaughter statute to medical aid in dying would violate their fundamental constitutional rights under the Massachusetts Declaration of Rights. Commonwealth of Massachusetts moved for summary judgment 
seeking a determination as a matter of law that the Commonwealth's manslaughter statute does not violate the Massachusetts Constitution. The Superior Court held that medical aid in dying is not a fundamental right, even for those at the end of their lives. Kleigler and Steinbeck appealed, and the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court agreed to review the case. This case pits personal autonomy and bodily integrity against the power of the state to protect human life. This is Kleigler versus Attorney General. Welcome to Legal Judgments, where we tackle litigation and trial strategy by analyzing and talking about real legal cases. I'm Bob Stetson, a Boston-based trial lawyer at Burnkaw. Today, we're discussing a case that touches on some of the most profound questions facing society and law today, the legality of medical aid in dying. With me to discuss the case is John Kapos, partner at the international powerhouse O'Melveny & Myers. John litigates commercial cases in federal courts throughout the country and at the International Trade Commission. John represented Drs. Kleigler and Steinbeck in this case in collaboration with Compassion and Choices. Welcome, John. Thanks for joining. Thanks, Bob, and thanks for having me on your podcast. It's an honor to speak to you and your listeners. Well, let's start with the SJC's decision in this case that the court held that medical aid in dying, even for a mentally competent, terminally ill adult, was not a fundamental constitutional right. And five of the seven justices further held that criminalizing medical aid in dying was permissible because the state had a sufficient interest in protecting human life and criminalizing conduct in the aid of suicide. Now, much of the analysis centered on Cruzan the right to refuse medical treatment case, and Glucksburg, which sort of left the door open for precisely the challenge you brought here in Massachusetts. But the, the court in Mass refused to extend the analysis. It refused to extend the right of bodily integrity to medical aid in dying. And in part, it, it had this sort of cause and effect rationale. It held that medical aid in dying is different than refusing treatment because it, it, it's, it's an actual cause, whereas refusing medical treatment, the actual cause of the death is the underlying illness. And so medical aid, aid in dying from the court's perspective was sort of closer to assisted suicide, which has been largely criminalized throughout history. And it, maybe to put a finer point on it in now Supreme Court Justice's Neil Gorsuch's book, The Future of Assisted Suicide and Euthanasia, he kind of addressed this causal issue. And he said, it's the difference between Eisenhower sending his troops into Normandy on D-Day versus Dr. Kevorkian's use of the Volkswagen van to administer lethal drugs into 
patients. In the former example, death is an unfortunate byproduct of the conduct. And in the latter, death is the point. So the first question to you, John, and just sort of just for a moment, putting aside all the moral and ethical questions from a purely analytical standpoint, why isn't this causal analysis the right way to look at it? You know, the difference between refusing medical treatment versus taking affirmative steps to end a life. Thanks, Bob. And you raise an interesting point. But in medical aid and dying, death is actually not the point. The point is to alleviate suffering by giving the patient peace of mind and empowerment to control their end of life journey consistent with their values. We know that death is not the point because so many patients who receive a medical aid and dying prescription do not end up taking it. Moreover, this distinction is intellectually dishonest. We currently allow medical procedures such as terminal sedation, where the doctor administers high-dose morphine to induce a coma, and the patient is not provided nutrition or hydration when comatose and ultimately dies from dehydration. The act of administering high-dose morphine is the taking of affirmative steps to end the patient's life particularly where you know and intend not to provide hydration and nutrition. In fact, with terminal sedation, the doctor is arguably more involved in the act that causes death. Administering high-dose morphine to induce a coma, knowing that you're going to withhold nutrition and hydration, which is the cause of the ultimate death. In the case of terminal sedation, death is certain. In the case of medical aid and dying, by contrast, over 30% of patients who obtain and fill a medical aid and dying prescription do not take it and therefore end up dying of other causes. So, and I can, and I can see that and that, that I think there is some logic to what you're saying there. Um, I do want to ask you a couple of follow-ups, but before I, before I leave the decision itself for a minute, I want to take a step back. You know, one of, uh, maybe the central thesis of this show is that the law does not develop solely as a byproduct of logic or as uh, uh, Justice Holmes stated as uh, experience. The, the development of law, in my opinion, depends on countless factors. Uh, in many ways, it's just as democratic as the legislative process. You have, you know, personalities involved. You know, you, you've got people that um, are willing to, uh, you know, uh, press their case in court and, and take it to a decision or to a judge or to a jury. You have lawyers that play a role. You have judges who are human play a role. Jurors oftentimes play a role. And when I was reviewing this case, there were two sort of, of these what I would consider non-legal factors, if you will, that kind of stuck out to me that potentially impacted the decision. The one is that by the time this case was heard, the SJC was appointed by the entire, all seven judges 
were appointed by a Republican governor, which in Massachusetts is really a unique situation. We've had a, a traditionally liberal judiciary, particularly when it comes to fundamental rights, jurisprudence, and equality issues. And the, the second thing that happened is Dobbs, which, you know, it's, it's, a, it's federal constitutional law, but, but that happened and that decision was issued right in the middle or maybe shortly after your oral argument. And it at least threw into question, in some respect, the, the way that fundamental rights analysis was done. But that's just as an outsider. And I'm curious, you know, you've lived with this case for so long, you know, are there any of these, what I consider non-legal factors that kind of played a role in this decision? Thanks, Bob, for that question. From my perspective, neither the appointments by the Republican governor nor the Dobbs decision were controlling in this case. Instead, there's a view that medical aid and dying authorization requires an act of the legislature and should not be implemented by the courts. Courts rule on matters presented by specific litigants in front of them. Courts do not legislate or suggest processes or controls of general applicability. Many people believe that in order to allow medical aid in dying, there must be guidelines set by the legislature to dictate the medical practice for implementation. For an example, eligibility criteria, uh, more than one medical evaluation uh, to confirm uh, accuracy and consensus, referral to a psychiatric consultation when mental capacity is questionable, multiple requests by the patient to confirm that the patient's decision is genuine. Legislatures are generally better at giving the public policy stamp of approval by making it clear to all persons involved in the process what does or does not cross the line. Therefore, while doctors not legislatures are best positioned to dictate how a medical procedure should be performed. Legislatures are seen as a place for limiting certain procedures by formulating guidelines through the lawmaking process. Well, I want to pick it up right there because, it, it, well, Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard stated, quote, dying well is the highest wisdom in life. And I kind of saw a glimmer of hope for that view in uh, the concurrence and the partial dissent in this case, the dissent in particular, where Justice Wendland, who was joined by the chief, uh, Bud, explained that, you know, at this stage in life where you've got somebody that's really at the end of life and suffering excruciating pain, the Commonwealth doesn't have a sufficient interest in determining how that person is going to die. And, it, you know, I mean, I think you've kind of touched on it in both of your answers so far. You know, medical aid in dying is almost, it could be viewed anyway, as an extension of palliative care, terminal sedation, for instance. And, uh, you know, in your last answer, you mentioned that, you know, about the medical community and medical decisions are, you know, best left with 
doctors. And I, and I could see an argument about whether medical treatment should be widely available as something that is for the medical community to, to sort out. And one thing that struck me about um, this issue, medical aid in dying, is that the AMA, the American Medical Association, has essentially come out, at least from my read of it, against it. And they basically have said, well, medical aid in dying kind of goes against the central role of physicians as healers. And so I guess my question to you is, do you need the support of the medical community in order to level your next court challenge? And if not, where do you, where do you see the next sort of legal battleground for medical aid in dying? Well, actually, Bob, I do believe we have significant support from the medical community. First, I'll note that Dr. Kligler, who was both patient and doctor, as you noted earlier, is therefore a member of the medical community. And he was squarely in support of medical aid and dying, as you know from this case. And in the Kligler case, the court did not reach the claims from the patient's perspective, instead ruling that Dr. Kligler was not a proper plaintiff for lack of standing because his cancer being in remission. But second, the medical community has actually found that medical aid in dying is a viable means for addressing end-of-life care. And what I mean by that is the medical community more generally. As for the AMA, although they were previously opposed, I think their stance is now a bit more nuanced and best described as a position of neutrality. In June of 2019, the AMA announced a new policy position stating that physicians can provide medical aid in dying, and I quote, according to the dictates of their conscience, without violating their professional obligation. The American Academy of Family Physicians, the American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine, and the American Academy of Neur Neurology have likewise withdrawn opposition to medical aid and dying. Currently, medical aid and dying is authorized in 11 United States jurisdictions, Oregon, Washington, California, Hawaii, New Mexico, Montana, Colorado, Vermont, Maine, New Jersey, and the District of Columbia. All of these jurisdictions have authorized medical aid and dying as an important end-of-life medical care. As for the next battlegrounds, medical aid and dying passed the legislature in Nevada, but was thereafter vetoed. So Nevada is certainly a future battleground. Bills are pending in other jurisdictions as well. Another battleground is around residency requirements in Oregon and Vermont. And by allowing people of other states to obtain this critical end-of-life care, in states that currently authorize medical aid and dying, such as Oregon and Vermont, we are effectively increasing access. And the fact that citizens of other states would travel to Oregon and Vermont for end-of-life care shows that United States citizens more generally support the availability of medical aid and dying. I mean, I, I think that that explanation there shows how 
deep and profound these public policy issues are surrounding medical aid and dying, you know, probably a, a lot more deep and profound than, than I could uh, possibly hope to articulate. One of Justice Kennedy's famous lines from Oberfell, that the 2015 case, I think maybe sets the stage, at least for some of the autonomy issues from a legal perspective. And he wrote, quote, the fundamental liberties protected by the due process clause of the 14th Amendment include most of the rights enumerated in the Bill of Rights. And in addition, these liberties extend to personal choices central to individual dignity and autonomy, including intimate choices that define personal identity and beliefs. And on the flip side of this issue, again, more from a legal perspective, but you have you know, the, the idea that the state has an interest in protecting vulnerable populations, um, in regulating the medical industry and in preserving life. And I imagine that the weight of these heavy and profound issues had an impact on you during this litigation. You know, you may have even had actual pressure from interest groups or interested people that were, were, um, you know, trying to reach out to you to, uh, convey their sentiments. What's it like to litigate a case like this, John, that can so inflame passions on both sides of the aisle, you know, whether you win, lose or draw, what, what, and what kind of, what kind of pressure did you actually face during the course of this litigation? You raise a great point, Bob. These cases have huge emotional impact on the parties, the attorneys, and those observing from the outside. We're dealing with patients that have incurable medical conditions that may soon result in death. Many of these conditions are accompanied by severe pain and suffering. And I think all people become emotionally invested because we know that we will all die eventually and we may die from one of these dreadful conditions. And the fact that the government, an outsider to your suffering, might tell you that you have to bear the suffering until you die from your disease, that's a bridge too far for many of us. And this feeling that someone else will strip you of control just further inflames the passions felt on this issue. Another notable aspect for me was the press coverage. It's not uncommon that we would have multiple interviews, uh, radio and TV appearances for these cases. Television crews are often in the courtroom when we argue these cases and the press will request statements from the parties and lawyers immediately after we exit the courtroom. By comparison, my other cases center uh, largely on patent and technology issues for which there's little interest beyond the two parties involved in the dispute and the judge who has to decide the dispute. Uh, well, just one quick follow-up to that. Uh, I imagine the, at least the insurance industry, it has, has gotta be maybe not opposed, but concerned about medical aid and dying due to the fear of, you know, increased medical malpractice claims. Did you come up across any opposition like that during 
your uh, time litigating this case or has that been a significant source of opposition that you've seen? I've only had passing interaction with one insurance company on this issue. And that interaction did not involve a concern over increased medical malpractice claims or liability, but was simply an inquiry seeking to understand the current state of the law and what is permitted under California's End of Life Option Act in view of ongoing litigation in California. But ultimately, the medical industry and the insurance providers both want clarity on where the line is drawn. Without that clarity, the stakes are too high for clinicians to practice effectively. This suit in Massachusetts was all about clarifying the law where the legislature had failed to specifically authorize or criminalize medical aid in dying. So we were seeking clarity on this issue. You mentioned that most most of your litigation experience is sort of centered around patent issues and you know not not necessarily the most emotionally charged uh, cases necessarily. Uh, this is very different. The stakes couldn't be higher. The emotions probably can't be much higher. Um, so I'm sure it's not something that you entered into lightly. So how did you get involved in a case like this and what, if any, personal experiences led you to this kind of work? I found this issue to be interesting because it impacts everyone, regardless of wealth, gender, ethnicity, political affiliation, and even religion. I actually do not have anyone in my family who's been a candidate for or has considered medical aid dying. Instead, I became involved because I was contacted by Compassion and Choices, the organization in Oregon that works tirelessly to expand end-of-life options and patient rights and asked to help. And the issue struck me as one that will have increasing importance going forward. Medical technologies has advanced to the point where life expectancy has now grown so that it is not uncommon to live well into one's 80s or 90s. And with that extended life expectancy, more people are dying of cancer, which can lead to unbearable pain in its final days. Allowing medical aid in dying as an option in cases of terminal disease, where the patient is in their final weeks or months and the patient desires the option, is the only compassionate course of action, in my opinion. Otherwise, we're forcing people to die under horrible conditions that they wish to avoid. John, thank you so much for your time today, and I wish you the best of luck in your future work in this area. And thank you, Bob, for helping raise awareness on this issue. That's our show. Check out the show notes for more information on today's case. Also, if you were involved in an interesting civil case or know about one that you think would be a good topic for the show, reach out to me at rstetson at bernkofflegal.com. That's rstetson at b-e-r-n-k-o-p-f legal.com. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to this podcast and leave us a positive review. Follow us on Instagram at Legal Judgments on Twitter at legal underscore judgments and on LinkedIn at legal judgments podcast. 
And don't forget that E in judgments. <laughs>